Well, hello, everyone. We are... Uh... What I miss? <laughs> oh, thanks. Um, we're continuing in Esther, and, uh, and I, you know, I've, I always think, and people always say that when you're studying to teach something, inevitably, you get more out of it, I, th I think, than anyone who, who hears the fruit of that study. And so, um, I don't know about you guys, but I've been enjoying going through Esther again, revisiting some things, and... And, and, um, and experiencing the Lord just uh, reaffirming certain truths to me or, or even bringing out new ones uh, or, or a new perspective on them. Um, but, uh, but last week, Pastor Brian took us through chapters 2 and 3. And at the end of chapter 3, um, Haman has set his plot into motion. And if you all remember, um, the... Uh, the the incentive for, for Haman's hatred towards the Jews, uh, it seems to stem just from a simple act of, uh, of defiance on Mordecai's part, Mordecai's Esther's uncle slash adoptive father, and, uh, and Mordecai, uh, for reasons the scripture does not make explicit, but I think that we can, we can assume it was, it was a, 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 a faith thing for Mordecai did not pay honor to Haman, and because of that, um, Haman's determined not just to get rid of Mordecai, but all the Jews. <laughs> it seems like an, like an overreaction. But as Pastor Brian also pointed out, there, 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 is, uh, there, there is this, 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 um, this seed of, of spiritual warfare planted in that picture, right? And as we looked at last week, how you have the descendant of Saul, a Benjamite, or maybe not Saul's descendant, but someone within his family anyway. And you have the descendant of, of King Agag and Haman and, 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 the, and, and the Amalekites. And, um, and how, you know, that battle is finally going to be brought to closure. And God is going to show himself once again to be faithful to his covenant. Um, and so we know that even though it seems like these things are just kind of happening uh, they have divine design behind them. And as I was thinking about chapter 4, and in the first few verses, we're going to read about Haman, uh, not Haman, I'm sorry, Mordecai's reaction to this new proclamation and all the Jews and how they respond. It got me thinking about how we would respond maybe in similar circumstances. Uh, can you imagine, can you imagine just the fear and the anxiety, we're talking about anxiety on Sundays, and so now like, it's like on my mind. I'm always thinking about it. So thanks for that, Pastor. Now I've, I'm finding anxiety in places I didn't know existed. No, I'm joking. Um, but can you imagine the fear and anxiety that we would experience today if there was a law passed that on a certain day of the year, um, anyone who had a grudge against Christians, anyone who had a reason to to harbor hatred towards Christians, could legally enter a Christian's home, any Christian's home, steal their belongings, beat them up, or worse, murder them, do whatever they wanted to, to you and to your families and to your children, and, and legally they would have, there would be no penalty for that. What if everyone who has a grudge against God or against his church 
had one day where they had legal freedom to act in any way they wanted to toward the church. And that day is on the calendar and it's coming. And there's nothing we can do about it, nothing we can do to change it. How much fear and anxiety do you think would take hold of the church? It would be bad enough if people were allowed to do that, but the king's decree in Esther isn't just, hey, if you want to, it's a command. It's, hey, this is what you're going to do. So it would be even worse if people were actually legally instructed and commanded to do that. Many people in Esther, just like many people today, would probably try to run away, try to flee the country. In Esther's time, that would have been very difficult. It would have been very expensive and very dangerous to try and travel across the entire nation of Persia without the king's protection. That was not really an option for them. A lot of people today would, uh, would say, well, I'm going to go down fighting, right? I'm going to take them with me. I, I, I imagine there'd be a lot of that. Um, that's not really an option for the Jews in Esther's time either. They're hopelessly outnumbered, and not only would they find themselves fighting with their neighbors, but with well-armed, well-trained Persian soldiers. So... Um, just let that picture rest on your thoughts as we begin chapter four. Um, because instead of doing those things, instead of running, instead of getting ready to fight, we're gonna see instead in a time of national distress for the Jews, in a time of, of great spiritual warfare that they're not even entirely aware of all of the implications for. Um, they don't try to run, they don't try to fight. Um, they turn to the Lord. They turn to prayer. And as Pastor Brian said last week, you know, God is not explicitly mentioned in the book, and prayer is not explicitly mentioned in the book. In fact, it seems almost like whoever recorded the events of Esther is going out of their way to not mention prayer. So maybe it was written for a more secularized Jewish audience, Jews who had forgotten um, covenant relationship, who had forgotten what it meant to be in, in, in relationship with the Lord. And, and so maybe these things are just implied and pictured for that reason. Um, but it's definitely heavily implied, as we're going to see, that prayer play, played a big part in how they respond. So it says in chapter 4, verse 1, when Mordecai learned all that had happened, like everything about the law that was passed, it says he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. He cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went as far as the front of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. So the king didn't want anyone coming into his area mourning and looking all dirty and nasty. You know, don't offend my eyes with your issues. Right? Um, so Mordecai was not allowed to go there. But everywhere he could go, everywhere he was legally allowed to go, it says he went around in sackcloth and ashes, crying aloud, and in every province, verse 3, in every, in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. And many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So these, these, these actions, um, wearing sackcloth, tearing your clothes, pouring ashes all over yourself, these are common cultural expressions of grief, and or repentance. We see it all throughout the Old Testament. 
Um, almost every time we see this in the Old Testament, in fact, I would say every major time that we see it in the Old Testament, it's also accompanied by prayer. That's why I said a minute ago, um, Esther doesn't explicitly say that they were praying, but because of the testimony of the rest of Scripture, we can safely assume that prayer was wound up in all the things that they were doing. Um, if you think about other examples in, in the Bible, we're not going to turn there, but Job, when, when Job is afflicted with all his troubles in Job chapter 1, verse 20, it says that he, he tears his clothes, he sits in the, in, in the ashes, um, and then the next verse, after losing his kids, after losing his property, after losing everything, he's mourning, he's grieving, and then the very next verse, it says, and he worshiped. Uh, King David, in the book of 2 Samuel, when he's praying day and night for the life of his child who has just been born to Bathsheba, and God's already told him that the child's not going to survive, David fasts, and, um, and he lays on the ground day and night seeking the Lord, uh, just, just you know, begging God. Um, and then when the child does not survive, he gets up, and the scripture says he eats and he worships. Okay? Um, in, uh, in the book of Jonah, the entire Ninevite nation, uh, a, a, a city full of, of, of evil pagans, um, when Jonah confronts them with the word of God, Scripture says that, that even the cows, it's, just, it's kind of humorous, it's, like, even the animals, um, uh, the, the king commands, no one's going to eat. No one's going to eat or drink. You're going to cover yourself with ashes, and we're going to pray for, for forgiveness. We're, we're going to repent, okay? So everywhere we see these expressions of grief and mourning, we can be sure that they are also expressions of prayer. And this is it's not some, um, some casual focus on prayer like we often do today. A, a lot of times today, we'll be like, let's Let's take some time to focus on, on prayer. What that means for us, practically, is that we'll pray a little bit longer in the mornings, then we'll go about our daily routine, we'll have our, maybe we'll have breakfast, maybe we'll be really holy and skip breakfast that, that morning. Some of you guys don't eat breakfast anyway, so it's not really a sacrifice for you. For me it is. Um, and, uh, and, then, and then we'll pray a little bit more, but we'll go to work, we'll have lunch, we'll come back home, we'll do all the things we normally do but I prayed a little bit extra today, so that's my focus on prayer. This isn't something that is built into their routine when they would express themselves in this way. This was a desperate self-humbling where you would deny your body any kind of physical satisfaction, no food to draw strength from, no sleep to draw rest from, because I am completely focused on seeking the Lord. You dedicate your whole being to seeking the Lord. Um, and um, so, this, this, uh, so different people would express grief and repentance in, uh, in similar ways, but we can be sure that as they were doing these things, they were praying and they were worshiping. And I wonder also, as we read about Mordecai's grief and we read about him like just going back and forth through the streets, crying aloud, and do, I wonder if his grief was especially potent, if his, if his crying out in desperation was especially potent, because maybe in his mind, he could easily say, this is because of me. This is because I, I refused to pay honor to Haman, and now look what's happening. Now, that's, that's an assumption. That's not like, we, we, I wouldn't make a doctrine out of that. But it does make you wonder what's going through Mordecai's mind 
as he's mourning and all these things. And it's important also that we avoid a trap because we're so, we're so easily given to legalism. We're so easily given to saying, here are the things I got to do to be right with God. We need to avoid the trap of believing that these expressions of grief and desperation are solely for the purpose of getting God's attention, okay? So, so they weren't doing these things just so they could get God's attention. We can easily bring that mentality into our prayer life. If I do enough, if I focus enough, if I dedicate myself enough, if I fast enough or whatever enough, then God might finally notice. And then when he finally notices, then I'll get my answer. But if God is who we believe he is, if God is omniscient, um, then it's impossible for him to notice more. Does that make sense? Like if he's all-knowing and if he's omnipresent, he's everywhere at once, there's nothing that you can do to get his attention more, okay? Because he's, he's omniscient. He, 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 you, we already have his full attention, right? And so these expressions aren't human efforts to get God to notice, okay? Uh, we don't spend time in prayer and fasting just to get God's attention. We do it as an expression of dedication and worship. And also, also so that we can more tangibly drown out the rest of the world and its distractions and focus all our energy on hearing from the Lord. So, so when we think about this and when we think about our, our own prayer lives, when we really want God to hear us, it should not be, Lord, please pay attention now that I'm this desperate. It should be, I'm this desperate and now I need to pay attention to the Lord and make sure that I can hear him. When you fast, you're saying, I'm removing distractions. I'm not going to satisfy my flesh. You know how easy it is for me to take a nap when I've eaten? You know how easy it is for me to, to just forget about my cares once my body is satisfied? And sometimes we do that. Sometimes there's a stressful situation. There's, there's something happening. And maybe God would, would have us use that opportunity to... to, to to more desperately seek him out. And instead, we numb those feelings, we satiate those desires with the cravings of the flesh. I'll just sleep it off. I'll just have a nice carb-heavy dinner and then I'll be fine. I'll have a bowl of ice cream and it'll all go away, okay? Those are kind of humorous, exaggerated examples. But the idea of fasting isn't, look how holy I am, now God's gonna listen. It's I'm going to, to focus all my desires on God. I'm going to deny every other desire, every other distraction is going to be drowned out so that I can focus completely on the Lord. So it's just important that we make that distinction and we don't get caught up in another way of showing legalism. That's not what they're doing. Okay, so in verse 4. So Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, and the queen was deeply distressed. Then she sent garments to clothe Mordecai and take his sackcloth away from him, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called Hatach, one of the king's eunuchs, whom he had appointed to attend her, and she gave him a command concerning Mordecai to learn what and why this was. It's just, it's, it's kind of funny um, that, you know, Esther hears about Mordecai mourning in the streets. She hears about him uh, having torn his clothes. We're going to find out from later verses. She doesn't know why. She has not yet read or heard about this new uh, proclamation. 
And so all she knows is her uncle is distressed, and her reaction is to send him clothes. You know, her reaction is to say, Uncle, here, put this robe on. This will make you feel better. <laughs> or, or, like, and, and I think she's, she's doing all she knows how to do. But sometimes we can do this. Um, sometimes uh, we, we can try to apply a Band-Aid to the suffering and desperation felt by others. Sometimes, like Esther, we are quick to try to find a solution to an outward issue, to what we think someone else is struggling with, before we even know the nature of what they're struggling with. And we do that, I think, because seeing people that we care about struggle and hurt and mourn, it makes us uncomfortable. It makes us struggle and hurt and mourn, right? And so our first reaction is to try and fix it. You know, here, Mordecai, put these new clothes on. I'm, I'm queen of Persia. I have access to the finest clothes, the finest linens. If, yeah, here, get this. This will help, you know. Um, uh, but by not accepting the clothes, because Mordecai says, no, I will not accept them. By not accepting the clothes offered by Esther, Mordecai is refusing to be comforted. And in essence, he's refusing to accept the current situation. And so when, when they would tear their clothes, when they would dump ashes on their heads, um, it, it, they're saying, I, I, I cannot accept this state of events. And I'm not going to stop mourning. I'm not going to stop seeking the Lord until, until something has changed, until I receive an answer, right? And so Mordecai is not going to be satisfied or, or, or made content with just having a robe put on him. He's seeking the Lord. Um, and we also see that as queen, Esther is pretty insulated from the events aff afflicting the rest of her people. Um, let's keep reading a little bit. It says in verse 7, And Mordecai told him all that, all that had happened to him, and the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries to destroy the, the, the Jews. He also gave them a copy of the written decree for their destruction, which was given at Shushan, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, and that he might command her to go into the king to make supplication to him and plead before him for her people. So Esther, like we said, doesn't even know about this. Um, and there's a lesson there for us as well. Because sometimes um, we can become so insulated ourselves. And, and I don't think we can say it's Esther's fault. She might have not had a choice in the matter. We, we don't have to assume that Esther enjoyed being the queen. We don't have to assume that she enjoyed her new life or that's what she, she wanted. But regardless of how she ended up there, we can know for certain that because of the wealth of her position, because of the comforts of her position, she was completely oblivious to the needs of her people. And sometimes, sometimes by no action of our own, again, we might not have a choice in the matter, sometimes we can become so, so, so oblivious because of our relative wealth to the rest of the world because of our relative comfort to the rest of the world. And sometimes we can become so satiated by that and disconnected by that, that we are blinded to the needs of God's people all around us. I'm always hearing about and reading about, like I'll get these, um, these newsletters in my email, and I don't read most of them, but, um, or you know, if you contribute one time to a cause, then you're on their, their email list, and you, know, you get nonstop you know, communication from them. And, um, so we're always reading about things happening in places like China, 
and things happening in the Middle East where, where Christians are facing this kind of thing, where pastors are being arrested in China and put into prison and separated from their families and their kids are being sent to state-run schools to be brainwashed, and where in the Middle East, you know, I feel like I just read last week about, about a, a lady who, 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 who had converted and moved away, and when she came back to reconnect with her family, uh, when her husband came to pick her back up, she, she was gone. She had been, you know, they had done another honor execution. Um, we hear about these things. We hear about our brothers and sisters all over the world who are struggling for their lives because of their faith. And if I'm honest with, with you guys and with myself, a lot of times I'm a lot like Esther, where my life isn't, is, I, I can go about my daily life completely unaffected by their situation. I know about it, and I'll feel bad for a little bit, and I might even feel bad enough to say a prayer, but then I just keep going with my life. And, um, and I don't share in their desperation. I don't share in their grieving. I don't share in, in their struggle for their faith. And don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to lay a guilt trip on us. I'm not saying that we should be going around with ashes and sackcloth and in morning, 24-7, okay? Um, uh, but God has blessed us for a reason. And we're going to see, as Mordecai tells Esther, you know, this whole idea of for such a time as this, you're not here by accident. None of us could control where we're born. None of us could control to whom we were born um, we have some control over the trajectory of, of our lives, but if we believe God is who he says he is, we have to also believe that he's ultimately in control of where we end up. What are we doing with the positions and the blessings that God has given to us? Are we, like Esther, unintentionally or not, um, so removed and disconnected by our wealth and by our comfort that we're just oblivious to spiritual warfare? Uh, we, we know it's out there, but our daily lives are unaffected by it. Um, so for me, that was a convicting, uh, you know, I've read Esther, I don't know how many times, and God has never really um, slapped me around with that. Uh, so this time he did. And that was really more for me than for you guys probably. Um, but I just feel like we are prone to that same thing. We're, we're prone to that same um, apathy. Um, what is your first reaction when you feel called upon to fast or to spend focused, dedicated time in prayer. Um, because unlike Esther, I doubt you or I will ever have the opportunity to stand before a king or a, or a ruler or anyone and advocate for the lives of millions of people. Um, we might. I tend to doubt it. But um, we're probably not going to be called to that does that mean that there's nothing we can do? Does that mean that when we hear about these things and we, when we learn about the struggle of our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we just got to be like, oh, oh well, you know, um, that's really bad for them. I'm going to get back now to feeding my animals or fixing my electronics or, or my job or my hobbies or whatever else it is. Um, what is your first reaction when you feel called upon, when you feel conviction to say, God would have me do something more? Let me pray. Let me fast about this. If our first reaction to that thought um, is to think how inconvenient or how un uncomfortable or how time-consuming prayer and fasting are, 
then like Esther, we, have, we are blinded by our comforts to the needs of others. And a lot of times, by the time God does speak to us, by the time he does reveal how he would use us and have us act, we've already decided that we would rather be distracted by life and we miss him completely. So um, that's a good warning, I think, for, for us to remember. So let's go on. Let's see, we're in verse, verse 9. So Hatach returned and told Esther the words of Mordecai. Then Esther spoke to Hatach and gave him a command for Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king who has not been called, he has but one law. Put all to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called to go in to the king these 30 days. So they told Mordecai Esther's words. So Esther's first reaction when she's called upon to help, when God calls upon her to say, hey, now's the time. You, you didn't become queen by accident, and now's the time where I'm going to use you. Uh, her first reaction is to fear and to think about the reasons why she can't do what she's been asked to do. And remember, one of the, one of the, 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 the theological themes that we, we looked at on the first week in, in, in Esther is that most of the time, and, and, and I would even venture to say all the time, um, when God does reveal himself, when God does say, here is the plan, you know, here's why you are where you are, here's what I want you to do, it is never convenient. It is never something that we have knowingly been preparing for. Now, God has been preparing us for it, but it's almost never something that we have been knowingly preparing ourselves for. It's almost always out of our comfort zones, and it's almost always going to be intrusive and interruptive to our plans. Um, but when God speaks, we must listen. Think about the biblical figures who were called to extraordinary purpose in, in Scripture, um, and all of them had to step outside their routines, had to interrupt their, their lives to be obedient. Think about Abraham. Abraham's just chilling out in Ur, you know, basking in his family's wealth. Um, we don't know much about him before that, other than he's probably coming from a pretty wealthy family. And, and God interrupts Abraham's plans. We can imagine that his plans involve somehow taking over the family business or following in his father's footsteps, um, being established in one place. God interrupts that and says, no, no, I'm actually calling you to a distant land, far away from your family, far away from your home, far away from your plans, and we're going to do something different. It's going to blow your mind. I'm going to do more through you than you could ever ask or imagine, and all the nations of the world are going to be blessed through you. What if Abraham had said, but I've got plans, God? You know, I, I, I got the family, you know, uh, uh, farm to tend to. Dad needs my help tomorrow to, I don't think they raised barns back then. Whatever they raised, you know. Um, think about Moses. You know, Moses has, has, has finally gotten away. He's, he's put Egypt behind him. He's finally in a place where he seems to be at peace. He, he's found a new family. He's found a new wife. He's out there with the sheep and just in, 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 in a restful place. And then God appears to him. God, God interrupts Moses' peaceful existence and says, I want you to go back 
to Egypt. And Moses is like, you want me to go back there? Lord, all my baggage is back there. Everything wrong and bad and, and traumatic about my life is in Egypt. And that's where you want me to go back? And God says, yes, you, you don't realize it, but you've been training your whole life for this. Think about David. David seemed to be perfectly content shepherding the flocks. Um, and, and even though he wasn't invited to, to the feast where, where Samuel was, he didn't seem offended by that. I believe David would have been completely content to live out the rest of his life as a shepherd, fighting off lions and bears. And God says, no, 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 I want you to fight off giants. And I want you to, to, to submit temporarily to the rule of just the most immature king ever and then have people that you care about betray you, run for your life for several years, and then I'm going to make you king. Do you think David is sitting there watching the sheep thinking, this is what I'm going to do for my life? No. So over and over again, when God calls his people to extraordinary purpose and glory, not our glory, his glory, it is interrupting our plans. So when God interrupts your plans, how do you respond? I fear that very often many of us, myself included, we respond more like the people in the book of Luke. Uh, in Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62, I didn't have these bookmarked in my Bible like I normally do, so I actually got to turn there. So, uh, in Luke chapter 9, you guys know the story. Jesus is going around, and uh, he's gathering followers. He's doing amazing things. He's working signs, and then people ask to follow him, and it says, now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have, have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So in other words, it's not going to be convenient to follow me. You're not going to have a comfort zone. You're not going to have a home. Um, all of a sudden, God's kingdom takes precedence over how you build your home. And Jesus, oh, I'm sorry. Verse 59, then he said, he said to another, follow me. So this time he reaches out to someone else. And then I think this is where we find ourselves so often. Jesus says, follow me. Here, here's what you're going to do. Here's, here's the grand purpose I have for you. And our response sounds like this. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And we know from studying this in the past, he's not talking about I have to bury my father who, is, who, who, is, who has just died. That would just take a few days. And you would think, Jesus, surely you could wait a few days. But what, he's, what he's, he's, he's meaning culturally is um, my father is still alive and, um, and I have responsibilities to him and I'm you know, maybe going to inherit, the, 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 again, the farm or whatever they have. Um, and so I have to wait till all these other things happen first and then, then you can interrupt my life, Jesus. Then I'll leave it all behind. Once everything is in place, once the budget is where I want it to be, once the roof is fixed, once the kids are through college, then you can interrupt my life, right? And then Jesus says, um, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. He says, let all that, all of that will take care of itself. You go and preach the kingdom. And on and on we could go. Um, and these people, we don't even know their names. Their names are lost to history. And you have to wonder, what, what did Jesus want to do through them that they missed out on? Because other things were more important and they could not be interrupted. Um, uh, I, was, I w went and watched um, Jesus Revolution on Sunday. And uh, great movie. I cried twice. I'm not afraid to admit that. 
Um, if you don't cry when you see that, I don't, it's, it's good. So there's this scene, right? And it's the, the, so no spoilers, because first of all, this happens like in the first third of the movie. So, and then second of all, we're, we're at Calvary Chapel. So if you don't know about this, then, um, but, the, but there's this scene that's like really well done where, where people in Pastor Chuck's church are upset because all the, all the hippies are there and they're barefoot and, and they're, they're not worshiping the way we want to worship. And, and, and Pastor Chuck lets, lets a hippie get up to the microphone and speak. He lets the hippie band get up there and play their music. And the people in the church are like, that's not how it's done. That's not how we do things here. And then there's this powerful scene where uh, Kelsey Grammer plays uh, Pastor Chuck. And he's, you know, he's saying, the door is open and, and it swings both ways. It's open to anyone who wants to come. And it's open to anyone who, who wants to leave. And one by one, the older members of the church, they get up and they begin to leave. And the part that made me like, start like bawling was one of the older member, members gets up and he looks around and you think he's going to follow them out. And instead he goes and he sits with the hippies and puts his arms around them. And he says, now we can start. I'm like, oh, so good. Um, but the people who left, they missed out on a... On a awesome, radical movement of the Spirit because Jesus interrupted their way of doing things. And they weren't ready to relinquish control. Um, and so I know that was a long rabbit trail. But as we're looking at Esther, um, her, first, her first response is recorded for a reason. Her first response is the same. And for her, it's literally life and death. For us, it's like a matter of inconvenience most of the time. For us, it's a, it's a matter of just having our our, our earthly financial goals or whatever else, okay? But for Esther, it's literally life and death. She's saying, now listen, <laughs> do you know what you're asking me to do, Uncle Mordecai? Because everyone knows that if anyone goes into the king uninvited, then there's only one law for that person, and that is they die unless the king goes out of his way to reach out and extend grace to them. Um, and then she says, and also, I haven't seen him in 30 days. And that's kind of strange. Even if you consider that for a pagan king who clearly had a rather large harem, we wouldn't expect the queen to see him every night or even every day. But, but the queen was expected to make appearances with the king. And so this is kind of uh, an interesting little side bit, a little bit, a little bit of a side trail where, uh, where she tells Mordecai that you know, she hasn't even seen him or been called. She says in verse 11, Yet I myself have not been called to go into the king these 30 days. And so just a little aside, I'm going to offer three possibilities of why that might be. Um, as soon as I get to the right page of my notes. So one possibility is that the title of queen for Esther may have been just that, just a title. Um, and if you remember during, during the first week, we said that usually kings would would marry not for attraction, not for romance or, or for love. They would marry for political reasons so they can, like, you know, centralize their power or have the respect of the people or whatever. So it's possible that the title of queen for, in this context really just meant Esther was like a glorified concubine. Um, that would explain why secular history does not think she's important enough to talk about or record. Um, and she might have been his favorite, um, but you know, maybe not, not on the same level as the typical queen would be. That's one possibility. 
Um, one possibility is that, as we said before, uh, the Persians and the Greeks were in a time of conflict while this book was being written, or at least while the events were taking place. So maybe she hadn't seen them for 30 days because he was off leading his army into battle. That's probably unlikely, but that's a possibility. Um, the one possibility that a lot of uh, commentaries and, and, and the historians tend to lean toward is that for some reason unknown to us, and we shouldn't be surprised, given what we know about King Ahasuerus so far, this should not surprise us. Um, one possibility is that for some reason she had fallen out of favor with the king. You know, we know how, how easily temperamental he, he was, right? He got mad at Queen Vashti for not wanting to appear naked in front of his drinking buddies. That seems like a little irrational, all right? He's not the most rational person. So maybe, maybe she had fallen out of favor and that's why she would be afraid to go before him. So maybe, again, something happened, he's not happy with her. And so she's like, oh, you're asking at the wrong time. We're having some relationship issues here. Um, I'm not so sure, even though the king said I'm his favorite, I'm not so sure he would spare my life if I were to go before him because we just had an argument or whatever else. Um, it's very possible it's, it's some combination of, of any of those, but um, it's beside the point. The point is Esther is scared. It's not something, it's not an easy request being asked of her, okay? And so uh, verse 13 and Mordecai told them to answer Esther, do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And there's those powerful words, for such a time as this. And I wonder how would this warning that Mordecai gives Esther sound to us as 21st century believers? Um, it's, it's kind of a bold warning. He says, look, the people of, of Israel, the, the Jews, they're going to be rescued one way or the other. That shows a, a remarkable amount of faith. And again, I think it's, 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 it's an implication um, of God's presence. Like Mordecai understands God's not going to break covenant with his people now. He hasn't led them through all this stuff throughout history just to abandon them now. Mordecai knows that God's faithfulness to his covenant demands that he step in and rescue his people. So he says with remarkable faith, look, God's people are gonna be rescued whether, whether you help or not. Um, but he says, but don't think that somehow you're gonna be, you're, gonna, you're, you're, you're going to escape whatever punishment happens, don't, don't think that somehow God's gonna not hold you accountable for being too afraid to move and to act when he calls on you to move and to act. And I think for us sometimes, I say us, and I think for me a lot of times when God calls on me to move and to act, there's this real subtle lie that creeps in that takes advantage of the grace of God and that makes me more comfortable with not doing what God's telling me to do. And it goes something like this. Maybe it sounds different in your head. Maybe you don't think these words explicitly in your head, but it feels something like this. God, I, I know you're telling me to go talk to that person. Or I know this is what you want me to do, but I'm just too busy. Or I'm just, I'm just too scared. Lord, you, you know I'm afraid. <laughs> You know I'm insecure. You know that's not my gifting or my strength. Um, 
So um, I'm so grateful that I have your forgiveness. I'm so grateful for your grace. And so I'm just going to step, step out this time. I'm going to excuse myself this time. And um, thank you for forgiving me. You know, and we just think in our heads that when we face God one day in eternity and all these opportunities and callings that he has laid on our heart are the things that we have passed by over and over again, we think he's going to say something like, hey, I know you meant well. I know you tried. It's okay. Don't worry about it, you know. Um, and, I, and we forget what the testimony of Scripture is. We forget about the parable of the master who left three servants in charge of his wealth. And when he comes back and finds two faithful servants and one servant who, out of fear and laziness, did nothing. And Scripture says that that servant was cast out. We forget the testimony of passages like, um, like James 2, 14 through 16. We have that up there. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food? And one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body. What does it profit? So James says, what good is your faith? Is your faith even real if it's just words? If when God moves on you to help someone to go out and step out of your comfort zone to do something, you have all the excuses, all the reasons, all the fears and insecurities and busyness that keeps you from doing it. James says, is your faith even real then? And then again in, in 1 John three seventeen, whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? Have you even experienced? These aren't my, these aren't my words. This is the words of scripture. Have you even experienced God's love if you so easily, if we so easily shut up our hearts to the needs of others. And so um, we, we should take this warning to heart that Mordecai gives to Esther. He's saying, look, God's, and it, it should be comforting to us too, to know that God's ultimate plan is inevitable. Ultimately, what God is going to do, God is going to do. And he has enough love and grace and mercy for us to want to involve us, but when we constantly tell him no, if we constantly give him all the reasons why, Lord, we can't do it, we can't do it, we can't do it, then Mordecai's warning to Esther should ring in our ears. Do you think that you also will escape accountability for, what you're, for how you're being disobedient? God is gracious. Praise the Lord, he's gracious. Praise the Lord, he's forgiving. Um, but we can also, in our flesh, exploit that and use that grace and forgiveness as an excuse for our disobedience. And so um, this warning is important. So he says, again, who knows whether you have come to this kingdom for such a time as this. And so no matter where you find yourselves in life, every station in life that you reach is a platform for the gospel and the glory of Jesus. If you have a new job, have you been demoted in your old job? Uh, maybe you're forced to live with family you don't like, or maybe you found yourself some new family that you do like. Um, all of it, no matter where we find ourselves in life, we know that God has used, God has plans to use every platform, every position, every new thing, new development for his glory. And he brings us to those times for such a time as this. Um, 
but we have to strive constantly against our flesh, um, that we take nothing for granted, that, that nothing about where we find ourselves in life should we take for granted that, oh, it just happened by accident or it's just a coincidence or it's just life happening. No, God has brought us to those times for such a time as this. Okay, so and then verse 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. And again, the implication is prayer and fasting. Either eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will, will, will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law. Like she kind of, like, remember, I'm going to do this. It's against the law, but I'm going to do it. And if I perish, I perish. This is a, those words are so hardcore to me, you know, here. If, if I die, I die. And it reminds me of, there's that scene from, uh, from Rocky IV. You guys know? All the men here are nodding their heads, you know, where, like, the Vic Russian guy, like, he knocks out Apollo Creed. I think I mean, this is right. And he's like, you know, if he dies, he dies. Um, that's bad, right? That's, like, the bad version of this. But Esther, in, in, in all of a sudden, in this, this, this presence of, of, of spiritual resolve uh, and strength that we believe has come from the Lord, she says, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do what God's told me to do. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to fast beforehand, and I'm going to ask everyone else to pray and fast for me. And no matter what happens, if I perish, I perish. And she carries on the tradition of, of other followers of God who made similar proclamations. And we should take uh, courage and inspiration from them. I think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel 3, 16 through 18. I love what they tell the kings. It says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. And if you remember, they didn't bow before the, 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 the giant statue and they're, they're, they're brought before their king. And he's like, why aren't you bowing before me? And they're like, we don't have to really answer to you. We don't have to give you an answer in this matter. We answer to God. Um, if that is the case, our God who we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, and some translations say, but even if he doesn't, even if God doesn't show up the way we think he might, even if we have to pass through the fire and, and, and die for our faith, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Ah, this just makes me want to like, like get like a sword or a spear or something and like, you know, get after it. Um, and then um, I'll still love in the New Testament in Acts chapter 5, verses 27 through 29, after they've been arrested, after they've been put in prison, after they've been arrested again a second time, like, like twice in two days, um, and brought before the Sanhedrin, and, and they're told, hey, stop talking about Jesus it says, and when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man, talking about Jesus, this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. This is good stuff. And Esther is in that tradition of men and women who who God brought to that point of just profound faith to say, it doesn't matter what happens to me. It doesn't matter the consequences. It doesn't matter if I lose friends or if I get made fun of or if I lose my job or if I lose my life. I'm going to do what God's told me to do. 
And then we read in the book of Revelation, looking towards the future, the testimony of those who died for their faith, who overcame the enemy. You know, we're always talking about how do we overcome the, the enemy? How do we engage in spiritual warfare? Here's how. They overcame him, Revelation 12, 11. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb, so by Jesus. First of all, it's always about Jesus. And by the word of their testimony, they knew what Jesus had done for them, and they did not love their lives to the death. This is how we overcome Satan, not through our own power, not through, we, we had, I think we had, I think we had a great men's breakfast because um, I brought the devotion. So uh, that's not why it was great. But we had some really good conversation about spiritual warfare and about how we overcome the enemy. And so often we get led astray into all these other ideas, um, but we overcome him. We overcome trials and temptations and struggles and we overcome fear and we overcome all the things that would keep us from being obedient by the power of the lamb, by the blood of the lamb, the word of your testimony, and you don't love your lives so much that you're afraid of death. So Esther, by God's grace, came to that point where she decided, I don't love my life so much that I'm gonna be disobedient to God. No, my life is worth laying aside so that I can be obedient to God. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther commanded him. We can well imagine that this story was told over and over again for the Jewish communities that followed, for those who were in exile still, for those who were returning uh, back to Jerusalem from exile, for those who faced persecution under, under the Romans and under everyone else. And, and over and over again, we can probably imagine that when their faith began to falter, when their courage began to fail, they were reminded of the words of Esther I'm going to go before the king, and if I die, I die. But I'm going to do what God's told me to do. Praise the Lord. So um, God has placed you, whether it be as a community or a church or as an individual, God has placed us where he wants us. And there will be opportunities for God to use where he has placed us to do great things for his name. The question is, will we be ready when he calls, and what will our answer be? So let's pray. Father, the, the testimony of how you use this precious young lady in Scripture, Lord, the, the, the boldness that you gave her in that moment, the courage and the faith. Oh, Lord, if we could just have sometimes a fraction of that, Lord, of what your church could do for your kingdom and for your glory. Lord, would you... Would you bring each of us individually and would you bring us as a community of faith back to this, this core truth, this, this important foundational truth, Lord, that our, ultimately our, our lives aren't worth comparing to, 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 to the greatness of, of your eternal glory. Lord, that the comforts and the pleasures of this temporary passing world are not worth clinging on to. Lord, I don't know how that looks for all of us. I, I, I have a pretty good idea of how it looks for me. Um, and Lord, again, I do thank you that you are gracious and that you are forgiving, but I pray that we would not lean on that grace and forgiveness in abusive ways, that we wouldn't use them as excuses for disobedience. Father, we pray for that same courage, that same vision, um, vision of your glory uh, that would overcome us and overwhelm us when the, when the moment is right, um, when you call upon us, Father, would, would we be obedient and courageous? Um, 
We ask you these things in Christ's name. Amen.